Koch Industries and Charles and David Koch, names that are synonymous with right-wing political causes and deregulation of industry. So why is Koch joining with the left to give former inmates second chances? Coke Industries and Criminal Justice Reform. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. To support the show and unlock extra content and more exclusive benefits, become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal criminal justice nerd and your guide to all things dysfunctional and unjust and even ridiculous and occasionally hopeful in our criminal justice system. And still so, so happy with that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I want you to put yourself back in time for a minute. Go back to the 1980s if you can. Not for the first time. The Republican Party was using crime as a potent political force. The Reagan administration delivered tough-on-crime policies, promising and enacting laws creating more prisons, harsher sentences, mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenders. In 1988, the party kept the presidency in no small part by using that potent mixture of tough-on-crime with racial innuendo. Here is some audio from the infamous Willie Horton ad used by George H.W. Bush's campaign to attack the Democratic candidate Michael Dukakis. Take a listen. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. In the video, you can see the obvious, though unspoken, racial overtones to the ad. We'll put a link to it up on our website. Now, step just ahead in time from there to the early 90s. Bill Clinton became president in 1992. He and Al Gore had written into office on a platform of change. But with crime, it was change toward the Republican position. Clinton decided very early on that he would not be beaten by being painted as soft on crime like Dukakis was. He came out early and trumpeted his support for the death penalty, one of the criminal justice litmus tests of the era. Here's some audio from a Clinton-Gore commercial in the same vein. Take a listen. And they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. They've called for an end to welfare as we know it, so welfare can be a second chance, not a way of life. They've sent a strong signal to criminals by supporting the death penalty, and they've rejected the old and tax and in 1994, politics. Clinton, of course, signed that 1994 crime bill that is now so much discussed in the presidential campaign, with which he sought to build his own tough-on-crime bona fides. More cops on the street, more tough federal sentences, more people in prison. In short, it was a doubling down on mass incarceration and harsh criminal punishment. Both parties were in this. We can see now, in hindsight, the wreckage that this race to the criminal justice bottom has given us the most incarcerated population in the world on a per capita basis, well more than 2 million in prison and jails. 
millions more on probation, on parole, and even more people permanently marked with criminal records who can't get jobs, can't qualify for housing, student loans, driver's licenses, even licenses necessary to engage in trades like being a barber or a cosmetologist. At this point, almost everyone agrees we must change and fix the criminal justice machinery, especially, though not only, the over-the-top way we incarcerate and penalize people. Now, the impulse to reform and change this out-of-control system, whether from the point of view of police power or prisons or race or cost, whatever, that's not new. I've worked in that arena myself for almost three decades. There were, of course, the usual suspects on the left working it, too, like the American Civil Liberties Union, the NAACP, other organizations, and some left-leaning political leaders, too. But overall, this movement to break the system, to slow it down, was pretty slow to gain traction. But somewhere, about 10 or 12 years ago, more people and organizations began to wake up to what we had done with millions of our fellow Americans and what it had cost and was costing our country. Something strange began to happen right about that time. It's strange for our country anyway, because in this country, divided always between left and right, both ends of the political spectrum began to make common cause about bringing the criminal justice system to heal, bringing it to better, more sensible ways of dealing with crime and using punishment. There was Right on Crime, the organization from the right side of the spectrum, talking and working with the ACLU, the American Conservative Union's Center for Criminal Justice Reform, the Texas Public Policy Foundation, many other conservative groups have joined. And at a certain point came a new participant, Coke Industries. That company you've heard about, Charles and David Koch, they began to become players. They funded initiatives. They backed meetings and conclaves and conferences. Important disclosure here. In 2017, I participated in a conference on criminal justice reform at Arizona State University's law school. The conference and the resulting books on criminal justice reform to which I contributed were sponsored in part by Koch's criminal justice reform arm. And they began to speak out for better alternatives. That's fair to say that many on the left were not so happy about their new well-financed partner. They were, and many still are, suspicious of Koch's motives and believe that this is an effort to co-opt legitimate criminal justice reform to serve their own anti-regulatory agenda. And yet, they're impossible to ignore and have been consistent players now for years. They have been part of the only successful criminal justice reform effort on the federal level in the last three years. And we're going to talk about that today. And our guest today, who works for Koch, is going to give us her take on these issues and on Koch's position in the criminal justice reform movement. Jenny Kim is Deputy General Counsel and Vice President for Public Policy with Koch Industries. Before she joined Koch in 2008, Ms. Kim was an associate at two different Washington, D.C. law firms. Prior to that, she was a presidential management fellow uh, in the George W. Bush administration, working for the White House Counsel's Office and the Pentagon's Missile Defense Agency. 
Ms. Kim speaks across the country and writes about criminal justice reform issues and Coke Industries' commitment to those issues. Jenny Kim, welcome to Criminal Injustice. David, thank you very much for this opportunity, and I look forward to conversing with you about this very important issue. Well, I'm glad you're here. Let's let's start with Coke and Coke Industries. I imagine everybody's heard of Charles and David Coke and their very large industrial company, and they've been known for years for supporting Republican candidates uh, and especially their desire for deregulation, particularly in the environmental area. From that background, it's very interesting, and I'm curious, where does the impulse for criminal justice reform come from? What's the aspect of this this uh, box of issues that appeals to the founders of that particular company? Well, um, David, thank you so much for that first question. And, you know, let's talk about what Coke Industries does at large, right? We make a lot of things, whether it's bedding, uh, the things that go into our carpets, uh, the airbags, um, it's more than just, you know, oil and gas. And Coke Industries, we have always been focused on uniting with anyone to do right. And then, therefore, also being very committed to removing barriers to opportunities for all individuals. I have had so many different jobs here at Coke um, throughout the 11-plus years I've been here, and I've been very gratified. And that same opportunity needs to be afforded to everyone because this is really a question at the end of the day also of talent management and talent hiring and retention. Unfortunately, the criminal justice system, and you're talking about that box, and we need to take it out of that box, frankly, is emblematic of a two-tiered system that holds back too many people from achieving extraordinary things. I mean, we wouldn't have vulcanized rubber uh, invented if we applied this criminal justice system to the late 1800s, early 1900s, because the inventor of vulcanized rubber was regularly in jail all the time for, for, for debt. So where does this happen? One in three Americans end up having a criminal record. We have around 2 million Americans in prison. Um, Another 4.5 million are on probation and parole. But 95% of all these folks will be returning to our communities. And yet, even though they have paid their debts to society, they will face major barriers in getting housing, jobs, education, and in most cases, voting and participating in their communities. Everyone should be free to continue their lives after paying their debts to society. And, no one should and, ever be defined by his or her worst choice on his or her worst day. Yes, and I've I've heard uh, in your various talks and I've read in your own writing that what you're about there is uh, not what you did in your past, but your potential for the future. Is that kind of what's going on here? Yes, absolutely. I think there was an article in Workforce.com the other day, and this is part driven by the Sherm poll. There is an openness and a willingness to reconsider and to realign everything, all the baseline assumptions that we've had within us. And this has been the best part of working within criminal justice reform, right? It really forces you to to look at every baseline assumption. This is not a right or left issue. This is an American issue. And with 7.3 million jobs at stake right now, because there's that many openings and the unemployment rate being what it is at like three point some odd percent, depending on which survey you look at, there's so much opportunity out there. And we can't afford to eliminate a certain part of the population just because they have a criminal record, because by some uh, estimates, we lose about $87 billion of productivity a year because we do not consider people with criminal records um, as, part of the, as part of our businesses and our economy. And actually, the Society for Human Resource Management, right after the First Step Act passed, the CEO of that organization, Johnny Taylor, is also on the Advisory Council to Save Streets and Second Chances Reentry Initiative, an uh, initiative that Coke Industries supports. 
that he, he said, what's the next step, right? We need to help make sure that folks coming out are getting jobs. And how do we do that? We need to get the business community involved. That's and right. And that's where the Society for Human Resource, right, getting talent back to work to consider hiring and retaining. Now, this is really important, also retaining people with criminal records, because oftentimes when they have that chance, they are proven to be the most loyal and most productive um, employees. Because as I think you've heard Mark Holden say several times, right? Mark you know, Holden is one of the counsels in your company, correct? Correct. He is our senior vice president. Um, and he always talks about this, which is that we have to hire the best talent, not the best talent without a criminal record. We can't define people by their disclaimers. And oftentimes we have hired people who are perfect on paper, and then they stole from us and they ended up having a criminal record at the end. So the criminal record doesn't predict success in either direction. And that's an interesting point if what you're looking at is a population of millions and uh, a shortage of workers across the country. You know, I've read that there was a legal fight way back in the past, back in the 90s, that really set the, the uh, Coke uh, operation into looking at the criminal justice system. Tell us about this, uh, this incident at the Texas refinery back in 1997 and the charges that the company faced. So, Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy and who I consider a personal hero, he talks about proximity, right? You have to be proximate, and then there, then your whole experience changes. So unfortunately, in the 1990s, we had an incident where, despite all of our efforts and despite doing the right thing, federal government still decided to come after us. We experienced firsthand the awesome power of the government's ability to be able to decide your life, liberty, and frankly, your pursuit of happiness, too. So four of our employees were indicted by the Department of Justice on 97 counts which was later reduced to seven, and ultimately all the charges were dropped against them after a six-year ordeal, six years. Ultimately, the government settled, but these four individuals had to sign that they would not sue the government for malicious prosecution, and the company pled guilty to one count. So after that experience, after six years, right, we watched our four employees and their families go through horrendous things as we know that the 2.2 million in the prisons right now, the 4.5 million on parole and probation, they, they and their families are going through on a horrendous experience. After that experience that we had at the company with our four executives and we ourselves, you know, Mr. Koch asked, we have almost unlimited resources and we went through this experience. Our executives went through this experience. How can the average American who doesn't have our resources actually be able to survive the criminal justice system? And you know what? He's right to ask this question because Judge Jed Rakoff has written about this extensively. Yes, right? he 97% has. 97% in the federal system plead guilty. There is no trial. So you probably have a lot of innocent people pleading because they can't afford a lawyer, so they can't take it to trial. And therefore, the be their best option, right, to preserve what they have is pleading guilty, but then they open themselves up to over 40,000 collateral consequences. And Absolutely. And we'll talk about those. Meeting. We'll talk about those collateral consequences. There are other things involved there because a person, of course, could get a public defender, but sometimes public defender systems are underfunded and they can't keep up. And the, uh, the statutes that prosecutors uh, end up using in federal system in particular are designed to give prosecutors a lot of leverage and a lot of power. How would you describe the package of issues in criminal justice reform that Koch is most focused on? So, number one, we want to ensure that our criminal laws are just, right? That it's not unnecessarily, conduct is not, not unnecessarily being criminalized. 
um, because we're mad at someone. So we really focus on the question of criminal intent and knowledge standards. We want commissions to sort of look at the entire criminal code um, because there's more than 5,000 federal criminal laws, 300,000 federal criminal regulations. Each state seems to have at least 1,800 uh, criminal laws, and then each county seems to have all these um, criminal ordinances too. And so when you factor all those together, they have a undue, unduly burden a lot of average Americans, um, especially the local um, ordinances, and then review and revise the criminal code, and then also end civil forfeiture as well. Um, and then the second thing that we care a lot about as well is ensuring due process in grand jury and charging decisions so that we can better protect the rights of the accused in the grand jury process and also rein in uh, prosecutorial overreach. Because some of the things that you're talking about, I mean, the war on drugs, drugs have won, but it's given prosecutors um, a lot of power. And so basically they end up being judge, jury, as well as the prosecutor. Right. Um, the third thing that we care a lot about is a more just court system. And this is protecting Sixth Amendment rights to ensure the right to competent and fair representation of all, especially for the least advantaged. And then the fourth thing that we really care about is evidence-based sentencing. Um, we do want to end uh, disparities, sentencing disparities. Punishment must fit the crime based on the facts of the case. We think judges need to get their discretion back. Um, and people just need to look at things more holistically rather than thinking, if I lock this person up, I'll be safer, because the reality is everyone's Pretty much everyone is coming back out. Yeah, all but the smallest, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, very small um, population. Um, And finally, last but not least, um, which we touched on briefly, is reentry and collateral consequences. So remove government-imposed obstacles to opportunities um, for people with criminal records because, again, they've paid their debt to society. And two of the things that we're really working on is the Safe Street and Second Chances Reentry Initiative, um, to make reentry more effective and reintegration. And then also the thing that we just talked about, which is the Society for Human Resource Management's Getting Talent Back to Work initiative. Right. So uh, along that last, uh, um, that last stroke that you, were, that you were working there, the uh, First Step Act was, a, was, was one of the few laws of any kind that have passed the Congress in the last couple of years uh, that has broad public significance. Um, and uh, it was bipartisan as well. And this was uh, a law that will result in uh, some changes to federal uh, to federal statutes. It will get some people out of prison. What, in a very basic way, does it do, and how many people did it affect? So Koch's been involved with the First Step Act and the prior predecessors to the First Step Act for a long time. Um, Mark Holden was working with the Obama administration on all the different sentencing reform bills um, back in 2016, uh, 2015, um, and then we continued to press for it. I mean, the things sort of all came together probably in 2017 when Jared Kushner had that big meeting at the White House, and Mark and I were invited, and we kind of sat there and sort of discussed the possibilities with a very diverse group of people, right? Um, from the National Urban League to Doug Deason to Brooke Rollins, who was then uh, the head of Texas Public Policy Foundation, to the ACLU. I mean, there were a lot of people there, and they were all trying to hash out what could be doable. And Jared was very, very committed, and still is, to criminal justice reform um, because of what had happened to his father and then people he had met along the way, courtesy of his dad. So we worked very hard behind the scenes with um, both the media, uh, the legislators, um, the grassroots groups, and we really... Um, kind of 
put together a plan and worked very closely with uh, one of your um, prior speakers, Van Jones, who is a very uh, delightful person, um, and Jessica Jackson, and really sort of worked both ends of the coast um, to make sure that people understood that the First Step Act was a true opportunity and a first step, right, to, to start the ball rolling, to push back against the 1994 crime bill, and to look at people differently, right? To look at, again, take all of our boxes, pull everything out, you know, almost do a Marie Kondo approach of things, right? Tidy it up. What gives us joy? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Tidy up. What gives you joy? Locking people up, I don't think for most people gives them a lot of joy. Certainly does not for us. For us as classical liberals, we care a lot about liberty and people's ability to choose. And so that's why we've been so committed on the First Step Act, because it's exactly a first step towards reforming the federal criminal justice system and to make it more focused on rehabilitation, education, and redemption, as opposed to just plain punishment. Right. Um, so how many, people has, it, how many yeah. people has it affected? How many people have been uh, either have left prison because of it or have been touched by its programs? So on July 19th, I think the Justice Department announced that they were releasing 3,100 and I think prior to that, there's been about a thousand hard numbers are really sort of hard to keep track of, because I think after a year, the sentencing commission will issue numbers. But right now, everything's sort of either happening in the courts or sort of in the probation department of the U.S. Administrative Office of Courts. And so we've been hearing kind of collecting the numbers informally through FAM, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Mm-hmm. Um, but those folks have been released. And um, I think a lot of different businesses are taking a look to see how they can um, integrate them into their companies and figure out what they can offer to them as well. And also Goodwill, Salvation Army um, are also looking how to deploy their resources as well to ensure that there is a successful um, reintegration back into society. I mean, for most of the folks that President Obama uh, commuted sentences for under his um, Obama clemency program, I think there's only been one or two incidents, and really it's more self-directed than directed against anyone else. So yes. we are very hopeful, and we're looking forward to um, you know all the all the sort of great stories that will come out of people kind of being able to sort of bring themselves back into our our communities. I think this is really important, David. Which is this is all going to happen in our communities. You can't really say it's going to happen over there or over here or no, not it's in my everywhere. Backyard. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. is, it's everywhere. Yes. The um, the 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 three, four thousand people who are out and who are being helped uh, very significant in their lives and communities. Still a small number in the larger number of one hundred and eighty thousand federal inmates. Uh, so what do you expect uh, if this is the first step? What do you support as the second step? So, first of all, um, to get First Step Act truly implemented, and David, I think you can be a help in this. We need to get a Bureau of Prisons director in place quickly. And then hopefully someday Bureau of Prisons and Rehabilitation will actually fall under the Health and Human Services because there's a lot of you know, risk and needs of the prison population that are very unique. And then just warehousing and storing them is not going to solve that issue, right? We need to think about the social work, the mental and health, um, mental health and substance abuse issues, uh, soft skills issues, education, um, all those things sort of need to come together. So we need a couple of different agencies working together for this. And for that to really happen, we need a Bureau of Prisons director. That's like a first of all to get the first step back going. So the 3,100 plus another roughly 1,000 who have been released, we are happy about it, but it can always be better, as my mother would say. Always be better. Don't sit on your laurels. So we just have to keep pushing all of us on that. So I would appreciate it, David, if you could help with with that as well. 
So with respect to uh, what we're looking at as a next step, because this is just the first step, I know some some people are like, well, yeah, that's nice, but, you know, first step back, what else is there? This is like asking someone, like, which dessert do you want? So actually, we have a lot of things that we want done in the next step. So federal expungement right now, all the clemency power really is in the president and yes. the pardon power. We, we really need um, something that allows for clean slate similar to what the states are doing in Pennsylvania and Utah. And yes, we have it here. That's right, North in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Congratulations, yeah. Um, and hopefully in uh, North Carolina eventually as well. But we really need something along the lines of, of, of a clean slate um, for the federal end too, because otherwise everyone just waits. This assumes that when people go into prison, they don't evolve, they don't change, and that's not true, right? People tend to look back, think about how, can, how they can become better, um, and they really are focused on that, especially because I think, you know, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these are folks like us who have dreams and aspirations and hope. And if you take away hope, they're not going to try to aspire to anything else. And we really need to make sure that not do we only fix the criminal justice system, but we make sure that we keep on engendering each other a lot of hope so that even if we fail once, we can try again and tre- keep on trying to succeed and try to achieve our extraordinary moment. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I get that. And to live without hope is almost impossible. I mean, you're almost uh, you're throwing away human beings if you take away hope. And yet the country continues to give out longer and longer sentences. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is long sentences, because if what we're talking about is reducing overall prison populations, uh, we have had uh, a guest on here, Ryan King from the Urban Institute, uh, who really uh, gave us a tutorial. He said, you know, the, the short sentences and things like that, getting rid of those people, that's the low-hanging fruit in the reform game. You've got to address the idea of long sentences and the evidence, what you talked about before, evidence-based sentencing. The evidence has been clear for a long time. We have one of the leading researchers here in Pittsburgh, Al Blumstein. He showed people go through a criminal history and a criminal career and age out of it. It's not that older people never commit crimes, but once you get past a certain point, it's a young man's game. And therefore, these long, long sentences keep our prisons filled with people who really don't need to be there. Uh, does, does Coke support uh, uh, working uh, to get people out who are in on these incredibly long sentences and to change the sentencing system so we won't be putting people away for 30, 40, 50 years? So there are two parts to this, which I'm glad you raised because it kind of touches on all of this, which is important. I think folks tend to focus on reentry and then forget about the front end of the system. That's right. You're putting a lot you of people in. Of look at it both. Yeah. You have to look. The spigot needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. And so on both ends of the system, what we really look at, we don't look at this issue so much as nonviolent versus violent, because the fact of the matter is a lot of these folks have all had trauma. and We've got to figure out how the trauma can be pushed back and healed um, so that they can move on with their lives, you know, find hope, find jobs, find housing, find communities, have healthy interpersonal relationships with others. Because what someone wrote that some study justified that loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's right. This kind of conversation, David, that you and I are having, this means that we are constantly stimulated we're having an interpersonal relationship. We're actually talking to each other, communicating, thinking, using all our neurons. And if you're, at, if you're standing, then you're moving your hands and arms as I am right now um, and keeping the blood flowing. That is so integrally important 
to everybody and having interned in a brain lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, for a couple of summers when I was um, in undergrad in high school, those things are very, very important. And so I would agree. I think the whole violence question, there's a, there's a two part to it that um, John Saff did a, does a great job on Twitter all the time addressing, which is. Yes, I read his one, tweets. The statu- yes. Statutory definition of um, what violence is. And we've broadened it out so much that you can just be standing next to someone who committed the violence and you can still be wrapped into the violence statute. And even some of the nonviolent, quote, offenders, they could have pleaded down from a violent charge. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to say violent versus nonviolent. I think safe streets and second chances, we take into account everybody. Um, we don't like separate out by category, but we take into account anyone who was interested in being part of the randomized control trial that the uh, Carrie Pettis Davis of Florida State University is running because it's key to sort of factor in everything, right? And oftentimes, you know, I think I, I talk to a lot of different businesses who've successfully hired and retained people with criminal records. They would say like the, the folks who were in prison for violence, you know, they were the head of the drug ring. They know about marketing. They know about distribution. They know about pricing. They know about turf. They know about competitive practices. And they're also really good at managing other people because they had to manage other. Hopefully in a different way. Yeah. Yes. In a different way, of course. Yeah. But see, David, that's that's exactly right. Our assumption is that they've in violence and they're they're there. They must hopefully they're doing a different way. But this is what we need. We need to give them the tools. We need to give them mentoring. We need to listen to them, listen to them, not to respond but to actually just listen. And for a lot of them, it, it just means something if you're there for them. I have a really good friend, Lamont Carey, um, who is one of my, I guess at this point in D.C., one of my best friends. And he was in, he ran the drug ring um, up and down the Mid-Atlantic Corridor um, in the 80s and 90s. And then he went to prison for attempted murder, all sorts of other you know, acts of violence for about seven years. He came out, he remade himself into a spoken word poet, an entrepreneur, um, and so he and I talk a lot and he gives me a lot of good advice. And sometimes he pushes me like I normally wouldn't have done something like this, David, but Lamont pushes me to do stuff like this at the same time. He loves to teach. He has a boys uh, group running. And so that's the sort of conversation give and take and have, but we really have to like take our assumptions aside and listen. And frankly, it was not easy for me personally to take my assumptions aside. I grew up in New York city during the height of the craziness uh-huh. and the crime sprees in the 90s, where the squeegee men chased after our car all the time. And, you know, I grew up in Woodside, Queens, where, you know, a lot of young men went in and out of Rikers, like you would used to go in and out of Gimbel's and Macy's. Um, and, you know, my parents were, you know, very conservative uh, folks, and they were like, they must be bad people. They weren't bad people. They just didn't have a lot of hopes. They didn't have a lot of, lot of opportunities. And so they did what they constantly did. But, you know, you, you know when you're a kid, because, you know, they always try to help my mom carry the groceries up to our apartment, et cetera. They just were in a difficult situation. And so, unfortunately, they made bad choices. But because they had no nothing to sort of bounce back on, unfortunately, they ended up in Rikers constantly. Yeah. Well, you know, a person like your friend, uh, the spoken word poet, if he ends up with a seven and a half year sentence, he can actually make something of himself. He'll return to his community and hopefully have a better life. When we put people away for 20, 30 and 40 years, as we've become accustomed to doing, there's no way to really look forward to anything. And life without parole, of course, is a death sentence inside yes. where nobody 
dies until the very, very end. Let's take a quick break here. Uh, We are on with Jenny Kim, uh, Deputy General Counsel to Coke Industries. We're talking about the Coke Industries' efforts in criminal justice reform. This is Criminal Injustice. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints, and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But research shows these methods are far less reliable than you might think. David Harris's 2012 book, Failed Evidence, explores the myths and misconceptions around high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To celebrate our Patreon launch, we're giving away 100 signed copies of Failed Evidence to our first 100 members at the $5 level. Claim yours now and get access to more content on the members feed at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Hi, everyone. David Harris with you here for Criminal Injustice. And we're back on this episode with Jenny Kim. She is Deputy General Counsel to Coke Industries, and she works the criminal justice reform beat for Coke. We were talking before the break, Jenny, about um, uh, various reform efforts in which Coke is involved. And you mentioned uh, the uh, program that I think is called the Five Keys Model as a, an experiment being done. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I want people to know, and I don't want to just blow past it. Okay, thank you for the opportunity on that. So it's called the Safe Streets and Second Chances Initiative, and it sort of uh, arose out of a meeting that um, Mark and I had with Texas Public Policy Foundation at the White House, because Jared, again, very committed to um, appropriate reentry, successful reentry, um, and he knows of all these different programs out there. I knew of all these different programs out there. Mark knew of all these different programs out there that are successful and well-meaning, but all these programs don't know each other are all out there. So that's how we come up with Safe Streets and Second Chances Initiative, because David, as you know, as may, may know, there's a second chance reauthorization. $700 million um, was basically wasted um, per a randomized control trial study because uh, people who went through the program per second chance authorization uh, didn't necessarily come out better than before they went in. So we want to figure out, you know, what are the what are the key things that a reentry program needs for successful reintegration? Um, and so we kind of did two parallel tracks. One track is run by Texas Public Policy Foundation with help from Coke Industries. That is um, run by John Kufos at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and they are focused on evidence-driven policy reforms. And John is someone who has a criminal record, was a famous former uh, criminal defense attorney as well, but unfortunately his alcoholism got the better of him, and he almost uh, killed someone while driving drunk. Um, But now he's kind of, you know, had a second chance in life. He just recently had a baby girl and is on paternity leave right now. And so he's kind of built a new life for himself and he wants to make sure others can successfully find job, housing, um, communities, and have healthy interpersonal relationships, but in an evidence-driven way. Meanwhile, at Florida State University, all the way down there, um, they are working on it with Carrie Pettis Davis, um, independent academic research in four states, Texas, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And under Carrie Pettis Davis, she, and I don't know, David, if you've ever met her, but she actually looked at, get this, over 107,000 reentry programs from around the world. That's impressive. And Google Translate does work. 
I kind of wondered about that because sometimes it doesn't work. And I speak other languages other than English. But anyway, um, so that's how she came up with her five key model, which is number one, healthy thinking patterns. Number two, meaningful work trajectories. Number three, effective coping strategies, right? So sometimes like David, for example, if I've had a rough day, I will go and read a good book or, or, or I will go find a good cinnamon bun. Um, number four, positive social engagement, like the type we're having right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and fi- finally, five, positive and mutually beneficial relationships, like the one I'm developing with Tom Decker up in Chicago as we try to get more businesses to hire people with criminal records. Yes, I know, Tom. Um, so, yes, he introduced us. Um, so it's still too early to tell much. What's different about this academic study, David, from others, it's not going to take 17 years. Now, that's good. Um, that's but, good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, by, by that time, it's like, whatever, too late. Um, but what, what is sort of interesting and confirming some of the things that the support systems are really critical for reentry success. Transportation is still a major, major, major issue with everyone. Um, less than 40% uh, come out of prison with, with identification. Uh, jobs and housing is, is, is still a, are still big problems. Adapting to life on the outside is always hard. Um, the psychological toll of reentry is great. Um, independency and self-sufficiency are important, but unfortunately, 60% of the participants end up uh, are living in someone's home. And even where there are places where you can get help, it's such a patchwork quilt that it, participants have a hard time figuring out how to go about getting help. So that's why I think like in a city like Philadelphia, I don't know um, if you know about this, but there's this app that this young woman created called Donify. And it literally um, lists out all the different social services. And the Philadelphia public defender there, she's fantastic, uh, Kira Bradford Gray, she um, supported this. And so they use it there for pre-entry, David, yes. at the front end of the system, right, at the mm-hmm. moment of arrest. Because for a lot of these folks, they get into trouble not so much they did anything um, intentionally bad or anything. They just have more um, encounters with law enforcement. There's probably some... Uh, foolish ordinance that shouldn't have been criminalized, should have stayed civil, but unfortunately got criminalized, and they get arrested and they come into public defenders. But actually knowing how to direct them to the right resource, this Donify app is a huge help in kind of helping with pre-entry. And actually, David, one of the goals of Safe Streets and Second Chances is a re-entry initiative, right, is taking it to the front end too, right? Once we That's important. figure out it how really to map is. out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Map out all of all of the different services and the programs that are out there, how to get that to the front end and how to get, you know, David, this is really important, how to get more businesses to start partnering with public defenders offices and social work offices at the front end so that they can sort of be gainfully employed, find good housing before they really get that black mark on their record, go to prison and then have to come out. And it's, on average, it takes 10 years to rebuild your life after you come out of prison. Absolutely. So speaking about that front end, so important. This, you call it the, the spigot or the big hose, however you want to look yes. at it. Um, there have been various efforts to address that, uh, getting rid of lots of misdemeanor offenses that are really nothing more than excuses for enforcement. Um putting people into restorative justice programs instead of into the criminal justice system, working on employment as a way to get people away from the various criminal games that might be seen as the only alternative in a poor community, and even substituting for police 
enforcement, getting mental health units out on the street or whatever it takes to take those duties away from police and mitigate the danger to people of not only arrest, but even uh, uh, violence when something goes terribly wrong. Does Koch support those kinds of efforts on the front end, too? So, yes, we work with um, Common Justice, uh, Daniel Sherrod. Um, we work with anyone who on the front end, right, David, remember, we unite with anyone to do right. Um, we sort of, we talk to them. We try to figure out how to kind of build those partnerships and get people connected um, because you're right. There's all these different diversion and restorative justice programs on the front end that we really have to focus on to get the person sort of back into dreaming and hoping, right? Because by that time, they're not dreaming and hoping. They're sort of in a bad situation. And also to keep them safe, right? At the end of the day, everybody wants to be safe. So law enforcement wants to stay safe. And law enforcement, if you talk to Judge Stephen Leifman down in Miami, he will say that law enforcement probably need to go through trauma training too because they deal with a lot of the same issues that people who, are, who, get, who interact with them, the victims of, the people, of their interactions with the police can sometimes, they're suffering the same trauma. So both of them need trauma, frank, frankly, on de-escalation. And so we, we, work on, we work on all of those and partner with groups to really focus on kind of finding different ways of dealing with things, finding different ways of bringing joy back, bringing the Marie Kondo way back, because otherwise locking people up has not worked, warehousing people doesn't work. Um, we've heard too many tragic stories of people in jail for too long um, instead of being released on their own cognizance um, when they can't afford bail. So these are all the things that we really want people to focus on is how do we do things differently? How do we pair things up differently? Um, how do we shift the Legos constantly instead of thinking this is the set Lego uh, case that needs to happen and we can't deviate from it. Right. And then also to educate the social workers, the public defenders, the criminal defense lawyers, the prosecutors and the judges sort of to know what the resources are, because I think half the time they're so busy trying to get through the day to day, David, that they don't know what the resources are and they care. A lot of them do care. It's just that they're just trying to get through as much as possible. It's they're triage. They're really thinking about all that. Yes, it is definitely triage. It's emergency room triage. Yeah. So I'm sure you've heard this, you know, many times, uh, but I got to ask if, uh, when you go into a setting where you want to meet with somebody, you want to partner up, um, a lot of people have a very negative opinion of the Coke name of Coke Industries uh, from years and years of coverage of their activities on the right end of the political spectrum, their uh, thirst for deregulation of industry and so forth. Um, the argument I suppose you must hear is that uh, Coke is somehow doing this for its own agenda. They are trying to co-opt the criminal justice reform agenda for their own purposes. Uh, what's the response that you have found uh, uh, most important to give to people? Uh, can you always convince them? Convincing them takes time. And you're not going to convince any, everyone, right? Just as some people will never believe that people with criminal records can change their lives and be productive citizens and members of the community, um, we probably encounter the same. However, David, we will reunite with anyone to do right we were very committed to removing barriers to opportunities for all. And so we go to the meetings. We help things, people out with media, with advocacy, um, with uh, introducing people to other opportunities. Um, and so we work, we work it the way you would work any relationship, right? Um, people are going to always come to the table with their misconceptions. Um, but you just have to listen to people and just listen to um, 
you know, respond, not to respond, but listen to actually hear where their concerns are. And we've been in the space over 20 years, right? Um, because of the incident that happened to us, but also because we're classical liberals and we really believe in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And 40% of the Bill of Rights is about criminal justice reform. So it's about meeting people, talking to them, listening to them, and listening to their dreams and aspirations. Uh, one thing you mentioned yes. earlier was civil asset forfeiture. Uh, this is the mm-hmm. uh, legal process in which a person's money or property, whatever it happens to be, can be seized because of its uh, supposed association with crime or criminal activity. And there doesn't have to be a criminal conviction or even criminal charges. And then it up to it's up to the citizen to prove, no, my property wasn't involved. And then, of course, there's no assistance of counsel. There's no Sixth Amendment because it's all civil. And this has been used to fund law enforcement agencies. It is a funding stream for law enforcement. Does Koch support the repeal of civil asset forfeiture uh, like many groups have across the spectrum, right and left? So Koch does uh, support the repeal of civil asset forfeiture. We believe that civil forfeiture violates the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, right, by allowing law enforcement to seize and retain their assets from citizens who haven't been charged with a crime and it basically funds the law enforcement agencies um, with sort of free money, unfortunately. It shifts the burden of proof from the government to individuals whose property was illegally seized and then requires the individuals to sue to get their property back. And it's really inconsistent with the proper role of police in our society. It increases tensions in our communities, and that's not helpful. And it really creates perverse incentives for law enforcement you who bet. are often able to use those proceeds to fund their own activities. And I saw many a BMW and Mercedes when I was growing up in New York City. So. Yeah. Yes. So as we move into the next phase after the passage of the Second Chance Act, what are you looking for in these next couple of years uh, as you look forward in the reform area? What's Coke prepared to do? Coke is prepared to do um, focus on cultural and structural and programmatic change. So cultural, we've got to change the mindset that people with criminal records, that they're done. We've got to think about how do they derive joy? How can we work with them to bring ourselves joy? And so that's why businesses taking the lead on hiring and retaining people with criminal records, using people with criminal records as part of their talent management strategy is so essential. So culturally, that's what we are focused on for the next few years. And that's going to be a heavy lift, isn't it? I mean, you've got a a hundred resumes in the pile if you're a small business and, you know, you've got a few of them with criminal records or or the suspicion of that. uh, And you can hire people without them. So how do you convince the small business owner, medium-sized business owner to do that? Start with one. Just start with one. Do not be overambitious. Like for people who want to give up all sugar, all fat, They've just got to start with one habit. Same thing with business owners, small and medium. And actually, small to medium-sized businesses, David, do it the most successfully. Um, In Cincinnati, there's a whole conclave of businesses led by Dan Myers of Nehemiah Manufacturing. There's I Have a Bean in Chicago. Um, And I recommend to all of your listeners to try out their coffee. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, I'll do it. And so, yes, definitely. I Have a Bean. um, for And there's CKS Packaging in Atlanta. There's Zephyr in Kansas City, Leavenworth. There are all these pockets of companies. And then Grand Rapids, Michigan, like they, all the companies work together like Butterball and Cascades Engineering to fund their own employee um, assistance program. Not outsource it to some random company, but they all work together to fund it through their employee assistance program 
the group of companies in Grand Rapids together, and it's called The Source. So there's all these great things happening across the country, in the communities, amongst the businesses. Um, and then, you know, don't forget Dave and uh, Dave's Killer Bread Foundation. They have started to sort of map out what's available across the country. Jean Viev single-handedly is doing that right now. So th- there's all these like great things happening. So I said culturally, I don't think it's as heavy a lift as you would think. Because, again, we have 7.3 million jobs open, and we've got to fill them for the economy to keep on running. And this is the way to give opportunity and hope and dreams back to people and really sort of think about each other instead of being so focused on whether our next Instagram or Facebook photo is going to look right. Absolutely. So that's the first part, the cultural change. Um, Then the structural change is working with all the legislators and also the executive branch agencies to make sure kind of focus on, you know, Brady reform materiality reform, make sure that the the prosecutors hand over all the evidence rather than just what right. they think is the exculpatory Preventing evidence. Preventing prosecutorial uh, misconduct, yes. Yes. Um, uh, looking at the entire criminal code of every single state, uh, local ordinance, Jesse Smith down at the University of North Carolina, I think she tweeted out one time that in one year, um, all the North Carolina counties collectively passed over 2,000 criminal local criminal ordinances i'm like what what do they want with all those local criminal ordinances like that's just crazy um and those local criminal ordinances make for humorous misdemeanors but they're still misdemeanors nonetheless and they end up on people's records Mm -hmm. yes they end up on people's records there's a consequence and so woman in utah her cat slept on her yawn lawn the county uh charged her with a misdemeanor uh there were dandelions in, in her grass for another woman she, she was charged with a misdemeanor because they're both violating local criminal ordinances. This is all have to stop, right? We really have to think about what is the function of our criminal law. We want to go after everyone we don't like. That's called high school. We can't do that. <laughs> In a civil society, we really have to figure out um, what is the proper role of criminal laws, right? It's to keep us safe. The folks that we are afraid of, that very tiny population, not to go after everyone who's unpopular or not cool. That's right. right. So that. And so, and then um, Sixth Amendment uh, reforms were really focused on that as well. The independence of the um, public defenders, uh, especially for the federal defenders. We'll see how that goes. Um, we want to uh, also figure out how to get rid of absolute immunity and kind of change it to qualified immunity. That's this is be for a big police list. officers you're talking about. And prosecutors. Mm-hmm. So when they get yeah. sued, the the barriers to finding them uh, liable in civil lawsuits, often through qualified or even absolute immunity, those doctrines we've talked about elsewhere on the show, uh, you want that changed? Yes, we do. And then figure out more performance-based funding for the federal criminal justice dollars that BGA, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, gives out. Now, how do we you know, figure all of that out, right? Um, and work with all the different big foundations to sort of figure that out. Um, um, Adam Gelb, who used to be with Pew and now has started the Council on Criminal Justice, which yes. Mark Holden is co-chairing and is trustee with Sally Yates. I think they're going to produce some remarkable things. And um, I, I had the privilege of attending one of the first meetings, and it sounds like it's going to it's going to do some great, great things. So looking forward to that. Um, Arnold Ventures does a lot of great things um, yes. with, in the space of criminal justice. And then there's all these like pockets of entities, right? Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Kellogg Foundation. Um, there's all these philanthropies that are doing um, great things, especially on Clean Slate and uh, getting businesses to hire people with criminal records. Those are all sort of 
happening from a sort of structural change. And then programmatically, it's figuring out which programs stand together. Foundation funds a number of catalysts like CARA in Chicago, um, the Other Side Academy, the Last Mile. It's figuring out how to get more of this in-prison programming into the prisons, right? And I recently also had the great privilege of Televerde. Televerde is amazing. Arrowhead Foundation is amazing out there in Arizona and Phoenix. And when you sit down with those women, you realize the, the war on drugs is all this is. All those women were basically in prison because they couldn't deal with their emotional pain and they turned to drugs and boom, they ended up in prison. But they are smart. They're capable. They're going to lead, they lead the charge. They generate a lot of business for SAP and Oracle. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing that you get to witness. And I was very privileged to talk to a couple of them. And it was just, it was great. And then they sent me some great artwork too. Uh-huh. So that doesn't hurt because I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That's Jenny Kim. She is Deputy General Counsel and Vice President for Public Policy for Coke Industries. She is one of the leaders on criminal justice reform issues for Coke Industries. Jenny Kim, thanks for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. This story of a lawyer behaving badly from Court News Ohio, the legal profession blog, and the ABA Journal News Online stars lawyer Timothy Shimko of Westlake, Ohio. Lawyer Shimko had a client, an engineer, who hired Shimko regarding an insurance claim. The engineer had been building a house for some years. He didn't live in the house, but he stored some important instruments, data, and books in the basement. When fire destroyed the house in 2015, the engineer filed insurance claims on two policies that he carried. One policy with Allstate covered the house itself, but excluded coverage for business property. Allstate said it wanted an examination under oath, like a deposition, with the engineer, and that's when the engineer reached out to lawyer Shimko. The two agreed that Shimko would represent the engineer for the examination under oath, including preparation time and review of the insurance policy, and he would give the engineer an initial free consultation before they even started. The cost, they agreed, would be $385 an hour, and Shimko estimated the full fee would be about $2,300. So far, so good. But when all the work was done, Shimko billed the engineer $4,350, and the fee dispute was on. The engineer said he would only pay $3,300 in $500 in monthly installments, which he did. Shimko turned around and sued the engineer for the balance, $1,150. The engineer had to get a lawyer to represent him in this case. And that's when the bad behavior went into high gear. The new lawyer asked lawyer Shimko to drop the suit, but Shimko replied that, well, he had some information that the engineer might prefer to keep out of court. He said that during the insurance deposition, the engineer had stated that he had not worked or conducted any business on the insured property, when in fact, that was false. Then came the threat. Lawyer Shimko told the engineer's lawyer, quote, I suspect that my motion for summary judgment 
a public record, which will not be long in coming, may have an impact beyond this litigation, Lawyer Shimko said. Quoting again, I am giving your client his last break, and he would be wise to take it. Close quote. In other words, he pays up or the lie comes out. Now, this way of uh, negotiating is, of course, not unknown. It usually sounds like this. Nice little place you got here. Be a shame if something happened to it. Be smart for you to protect yourself here, you know. Well, you gotta say this. Lawyer Shimko was as good as his threat. When the engineer didn't buckle under, he put that accusation of a lie into his brief. Now, let's put aside that if Lawyer Shimko knew the engineer had lied, Lawyer Shimko knowingly allowed perjured testimony under oath by his client. That would be serious enough. But when this all finally came to light in Ohio's lawyer disciplinary process against Lawyer Shimko later, the hearing panel rejected Lawyer Shimko's claim that the engineer lied under oath, and they found Shimko had engaged in misconduct. The Ohio Supreme Court, which got the final word in the case, agreed. This was, they said, a threat to expose confidential information, not because the engineer had tried to commit insurance fraud, but only to disadvantage the client and to compel him to pay up. Oh, and that fee? Excessive, said the Supreme Court. That free initial consultation? Lawyer Shimko charged the engineer 150 bucks for that free consultation, and then he charged the engineer for his time putting together an email detailing the fee agreement, $539 more for that. And when the client wouldn't pay all of it right away, 1.5% interest, all excessive. What about that promised free consultation? Lawyer Shimko was asked at his disciplinary hearing, quote, my word is my bond until I change it, I guess. Close quote. Wow, positively the opposite of Shakespearean. The Ohio Supreme Court called Lawyer Shimko's conduct, quote, unreasonable and vindictive and rejected the disciplinary panel's recommendation of a two-year suspension. They said, you are permanently disbarred. No, they didn't. They gave him an indefinite suspension, which only sounds like permanent disbarment. He can be reinstated, said the court, but only if he shows by clear and convincing evidence that, quote, he possesses the requisite mental, educational and moral qualifications, close quote, for law practice. Anything less, the court said, would not, quote, protect the public and deter Shimko from engaging in further unethical behavior, close quote. You hear that, people of Ohio? This guy can be a lawyer again in your state. How do you feel about that? Will you feel protected if he brings the Supreme Court, quote, clear and convincing evidence of his fitness for law practice? How would you feel if I told you that lawyer Shimko has been disciplined twice before? Once in 2009 in Arizona for representing clients with conflicts of interest and charging an excessive fee and once in Ohio in 2012 for accusing a judge of dishonesty. 
I'm glad I'm not in need of legal services and living in Ohio. I wonder if any of those Supreme Court justices would be willing to retain lawyer Shimko when he returns like an ethics violation zombie to practice law again. That wraps up another session of Lawyers Behaving Badly and another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media. Leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. It really does help people find us. Check out our website, criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. If you have a question about the criminal justice system, why don't you call it in? You can ask Dave. Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also give us some contact info, but we won't share that. Again, 412-407-3389. Thanks for listening. I am David Harris. I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. The law makes heroin, cocaine, and meth illegal according to their defined chemical structures. But what about drugs made from synthetic chemical compounds, which can be changed with a tiny tweak in a clandestine lab? Can the law just say close enough? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Criminal Injustice.